Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Welcome to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from uh, the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? I'm feeling a little better. I guess it's uh, it's kind of ironic that one of today's episode is infection, because I think I would rather have the infection that the uh, character gets in this week's episode than the infection I have now. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's good to know that steroids work, uh, kids. Uh, Matt, Matt's been roiding and he's feeling a lot better. So that's uh, an important lesson for us all. <laughs> so uh, today we're uh, covering the Babylon 5 uh, Season 1 Episode 4, Infection, which uh, premiered on uh, the 18th of February in uh, 1994. And then we're going to look at the uh, Deep Space Nine Season 1 Episode 11, Nagus, which appeared on the 21st of March, 1994. Matt, do you want to kick us off uh, with the A and B plot from Infection? Sure, yeah. Uh, Dr. Franklin's mentor, Dr. Hendricks, smuggles biotech artifacts from the extinct Ikaran civilization, which wind up threatening the station. Commander Sinclair ducks the INN reporter, Marianne Kramer, who has an interview scheduled with him to commemorate the station to find the odds and surviving to its uh, second anniversary. So... Two, two, two very significant plots going on throughout this, but the, the A plot does, of course, dominate. They have very Borg-like uh, impressions from this uh, biotech artifact that turns one of the characters into, essentially to me, it looked just like a Borg. Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of, there's there's definitely a lot of the Borg going on there, although in some ways it's maybe more of like a Star Trek, the original series, like rogue artificial intelligence plot, you know, where like the computer takes its programming too literally and gets out of control and destroys civilization or oppresses civilization. He was seeking anything that was impure, mm-hmm. like that, that felt like a, a very, a, that was its programming, that it was seeking things that were impure and defining what an impurity was was basically impossible so that's pretty much how Sinclair at the end is to overcome the uh, the problem there 
yeah, it's interesting. I'd also say the design sort of reminds me of the design of the uh, Nelson who gets infected by the uh, extinct Ikaran civilizations artifacts. It sort of reminds me on the one hand of like the phalanx uh, from the X-Men comics. I was just reading the phalanx covenant from the mid nineties. And they often get talked about as like the X-Men's Borg, but it's like this techno-organic virus, like uh, infects people and creates this collective intelligence. And the collective intelligence is made up of a lot of uh, anti-mutant human bigots. And so, you know, these bigots as this sort of phalanx collective intelligence are trying to wipe out mutants. And yeah, they're, they're felt like a, a lot of similarities. I think this pre, I think this episode predates the phalanx covenant by like uh, two years or at least a year. So maybe there was uh, some residual influence on that, uh, that X-Men storyline. And then also like you, you make the point of the similarity to the Borg. I think with like the blaster arm, there's also maybe a little bit of similarity to the, to the Marvel comics villain Claw, who I think uh, is kind of famous for his relation to Black Panther now. Yeah, I've got to give props to the costuming department on this particular episode with the way that that character looks. They, they He slowly becomes this, he slowly goes from being human to machine and there's different stages of, uh, of that. And they did a great job showing that transition from human to, to basically a machine being. And uh, it just looks, it looks great, honestly, in my opinion. He doesn't look like a, he doesn't look like a Power Ranger villain like a lot of times his kind of characters end up looking like. Mm. Uh, but he, he doesn't look a complete copy of the Borg either. I, I w- it was almost more like a horror movie villain, in my opinion, just some kind of like biomechanical. Yeah, I, w- I was impressed with what the design. Do you agree yeah. with that or were you more put off with it? Um, I don't know if I was impressed by you, but I, I wasn't put off by it. And I mean, I think right. specifically like, the texture on Nelson's skin in like the early stages of when the artifacts are taking him over that looked, I mean, that was really off-putting, but like in a really good way, you know, like the, the image of like skin and metal melding together in the early stages of uh, the, the infection were I thought really affecting. And like you said before, there's always something about a gun arm that just makes it more, makes it better. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of visual similarity, but the sort of sense of like the unstoppable machine also gave it a big uh, Terminator and Terminator 2 energy, of course. Being on the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And from out of the past instead of out of the future. Um, Two other uh, pop culture connections I wanted to stress. Um, One is uh, in the B-plot, we have Garibaldi telling the reporter Kramer how he met Commander Sinclair in a desert. And I think a year or so later, DC Comics did an 11-issue Babylon 5 series. And in the second story arc of that um, series, um, it's called Shadows Past and Present. They flesh out how Garibaldi and Sinclair first met in that desert. Uh, it's, it's a real bad comic. It, it's not good. The, fir- the first uh, story arc is pretty interesting. And we might even do like a, a side episode on it when we get to the its point in chronology. But uh, the, the second uh, arc of the comic that fleshes out Garibaldi and um, Sinclair's meeting, not great, not great. It's not even worth pirating. I would say no. I mean, it's better than <laughs> wow. the, it's better than the third arc, which is even worse um, and doesn't have any uh, mythos significance. Uh, but the the first arc is worth is, is worth reading. And 
actually did get put out as a trade paperback called The Price of Peace. So we'll, we'll probably cover that. And then there's um, there, there was the first ongoing series that did 11 issues. And then there was a mini series later that did four or five issues. And I haven't read the mini series because I think it doesn't, I think it's not in continuity until like the fourth season of the show, maybe, but who knows? Maybe that, maybe that second mini series is good. Yeah. I'm surprised DC put that out. Um, that sounds so much more Marvel to me, like them using those tie-ins with TV shows. Well, I think at the time, uh, DC was might still have had the Star Trek license. I mean, certainly they had the Star Trek license for most of the 80s. So even though I think we more associate Marvel with movie adaptation comics and with like tie-in comics like Transformers and G.I. Joe's, I think it, I think it really was, uh, there was a strong um, association between DC and Star Trek. And I think, I think getting the Babylon 5 license was maybe kind of tying into that vibe. Uh, one thing I, I did like was the inclusion of, of Dr. Vance Hendricks, who uh, is actually played by David McCallum. Uh, it, it caught my eye at first. I was like, I know that guy. Where do I know him from? And I remember uh, you had introduced me to Sapphire and Steel a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah. That was that the second uh, pop culture connection. And it, it's a really great English show from like 1979 to 1982. I think it ran for four seasons or four series as uh, the, the English say. And it's a kind of hard show to describe. It's got a little bit of old Doctor Who serial energy to it, if you're familiar with old Doctor Who serial energy, but it's basically about these two alien investigators named Sapphire and Steel. And they investigate hauntings and disturbances of time. Um, and, you know, it, it has that sort of British serial format where episodes are about 30 minutes long and you know you'll have four or six uh 30 minute episodes form one storyline and it there's just a in some ways it's very slow paced and maybe a bit of a challenge for a modern audience but there's a lot of really interesting like electronic sound design going on with both the soundtrack and the um and the theme music it's also interesting because uh, Sapphire and Steel, the two main characters, and David McCollum plays Steel, are really fairly cold-blooded. It's not exactly clear what they are, but they they seem to be some sort of alien, and they they seem to have a very kind of paternal and detached relationship to the humans they're helping. And it's also just a really interesting way of like doing haunting stories, but in a very sort of modernist like science fictional context like because they're looking at things that you know you could call like poltergeist or possessions but they're but it's always framed as like a, a temporal disturbance and so there's a it really gets the, the feeling of the eerie or the uncanny um the the sci-fi critic mark fisher has written about the show in that in that regard and it really gets those feelings but it does it in a kind of unfamiliar sf context and the uh, finale of the show is particularly pretty haunting and pretty dark. And I think it was a really big influence on both the, the finale and other parts of Twin Peaks season three, the return from 2017. I've watched the first, uh, the, the first series, like you said, and I, I will, I will get, say it's, it's very dark. Uh, it's very going into the unknown. I like that part of it. It's, it's different. The other characters that are introduced just make it are way interesting. So if uh, 
I, I definitely recommend it if if you're interested in, I guess, British TV from that era. Yeah, yeah. Like they they introduce some other alien agents who also have uh, also have mineral names. So like lead is one. Um, I, he lead's one of the most charismatic, and then there's another really charismatic guy, but I'm blanking on his name. But yeah, the, the, it, having the new agents are, are really interesting when you get to those and Sapphire and Steel. And then the other thing that just has to be stressed is how extremely low budget it is. It's very low budget, late seventies uh, English TV. Um, I, you know, that, like that that's a big that's a big similarity it has with early Doctor Who. So that that ought to be stressed too. Um, going back to Babylon Five, talking about the organic technology. At one point, it's mentioned that the Vorlons. This is this is the first time the Vorlons are mentioned in a couple episodes, but they actually possibly have this technology at their, to their advantage. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, I I didn't catch that. Although I think I, I think I was like getting up to grab a glass of water when that line was said. But oh. I yeah that that's a plot thread that is going to keep getting pulled on, although not not for a long time necessarily. Okay, yeah that that sounds real scary though, like if they have that kind of technology and can utilize it i'm just i'm just trying anytime they mention the vorlons i have to like write write it down because i have to know like what's their deal like i'm just trying to piece it together yeah you might you might wind up a little surprised because last time i told you that at the point where i was at we still knew nothing about the vorlons and I, i'm watching ahead a little bit and i know a little bit more not not a lot but a little bit more and you might be kind of surprised at like the direction and the tone it goes. So I, I'm really looking forward to us getting there and seeing seeing what you think of it, especially given your uh, initial revulsion to Ambassador Kosh and his encounter suit. Yeah. Speaking of suits, th- this is the first time we the Babylon Five crew. They put on these armor suits. They're like solid black. Did you see that? Is that when they're going to? Uh, to try and fight the thing like when garibaldi's like, yes like, yeah they, they, they put on these like leather armor suits and i was like that is so not that's like the most 90s thing ever that was it reminded me of like the x-men movies and just how that like leather armor was the thing up until <laughs> probably probably the middle to probably the probably pre-2005 is when they stopped doing that but like leather leather armor was the thing back then yeah yeah because it's interesting you bring up the x-men again because the the, the switch from like spandex and latex to leather didn't really happen for the x-men until the late 90s when you had the kind of one-two punch of the movies and uh, grant morrison taking over the x-men and kind of abandoning the traditional costumes right that only stuck for maybe three years before joss whedon came back and ruined everything (laughs) Um, what other what other and this is kind of a big point but i'll try to be swift and precise with it is I really like the layers of like irony about time and history uh, in this episode. It actually, even though I'd seen it a couple times, like thinking in depth about this really kind of impressed me. I thought the writing was pretty good because we have this scenario where Dr. Vance Hendricks is a university archaeologist and he gets frustrated at the lack of government and university funding for planetary expeditions. So 
he quits academia. He goes to shady corporations for funding and he uh, attempts to do like these mercenary expeditions to scavenge old alien technology and old alien weapons from dead worlds that he can then sell back to the uh, corporations. And, you know, the hope is he'll eventually hit a payload and be able to finance his future research expeditions without the corporate sponsorship. And so we see uh, Dr. Franklin being really off-put by his old mentor doing this. And so the way that uh, Hendrix um, overcomes Dr. Franklin's unease is partially through lying to him. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't tell him that like they broke quarantine with the materials, but he also kind of appeals to Franklin's a uh, little bit uh, egocentric desire to go down in history as like one of the great scientists with a great discovery. And so it's kind of ironic that on the one hand, like Hendrix is looting these dead worlds, these uh, extinct civilizations that can no longer give an account of themselves. But on the other hand, he's like using the idea of like an ongoing history to push Franklin into doing something that's morally dubious. Did you have any, uh, any thoughts about that, Matt? Honestly, Bob, no, that was a, that was a youth thing. <laughs> that was well, and then it's kind of interesting because that also picks up in the B plot because at the end um, you have the, the reporter Kramer is given this pretty heated interview with Sinclair and she's kind of echoing these earth first talking points. And he kind of, and uh, Sinclair gets really impassioned and he, you know, he's making the argument that like humanity must go in space to escape the eventual destruction of earth and to, preserve all of Earth's achievements like Marilyn Monroe and Loza and uh, Buddy Holly. And so it's sort of interesting that like, you know, uh, what Sinclair is worried about is like sort of uh, centered in the episode in, you know, we have the Akaran civilization that's gone extinct. And we even make the connection tighter because in a different, uh, in a different scene at the end of the episode, you have, Franklin and Ivana Nova in our, our latest um, <laughs> our latest installment of Deep State Watch, they're really concerned that our Earth Force is uh, confiscating all of these uh, biotech weapons from the Akarans. And they're kind of worried that the xenophobia and the uh, aggressive militarism that uh, killed the Akaran civilization may, may infect Earth too. So it's sort of interesting that you keep hitting these different pegs about time and about um, preserving culture, but also about being afraid about people who are too militant or uh, too xenophobic in their preservation of culture. So I don't know, I, I just really like the dynamics that this, uh, this episode was playing through. Another question I had for you, Matt, have you noticed the kind of weird rhythm of how Babylon 5 episodes end compared to the uh, Star Trek episodes generally and Deep Space Nine episodes particularly? Yeah, I really have. Like, honestly, with Deep Space Nine, uh, the, the episode, whatever, you know, it, it reaches the climax. And then you have like maybe a minute or two after that. And then you hit the credits. Yeah. With Babylon yeah, like, 5 there's like 15 there's like 15 more minutes of them going over different things that have happened and like the outcomes and what like it's a different setup uh than what i'm used to seeing yeah yeah and i think i think usually it's it maybe maybe we can kind of track this as we keep going and maybe maybe i'm wrong but in my sense it's usually just like you have the climax and the resolution of the main conflict and then Babylon 5 usually has one kind of extended scene after that that, you know, might might go on for like as much as five minutes. 
But this episode was in particular just a really interesting example of that tendency because you resolve the conflict with Nelson possessed by the Akaran bioweapons and that, you know, the sort of big action moments. And then you, you literally have four different kind of decompression or character development or, or wrapping up scenes that like in any other show, you could imagine like any one of these four just being the last scene and you go out. So you have um, Franklin uh, turning uh, Dr. Hendricks over to the security forces. You have Garibaldi confronting Sinclair about all the risk he's taking in the, in the violent confrontations, not only in this episode, but in the two prior ones of The Gathering and Soul Hunter. Uh, the third scene you have is Franklin and Ivanova dejectedly watching Earth Force confiscate the Akaran artifacts. And then the final scene is that uh, interview I was talking about where Kramer and Sinclair are, are conducting an interview and Sinclair gives this impassioned defense of humans in space. I don't know, do, do you have other thoughts about that sort of that sort of formal tendency of the show or about those specific scenes, Matt? I, uh, yeah, I thinking that it, we were at the end of the show and then like, nope, there's more. And they just kept going with it. Uh, whereas, like I said, with Deep Space Nine, they will just like, it, it'll be the climax and the Cisco will say something. Then they'll cut to that outro and yeah. the, uh, the, the full shot of DS9. And then that's the end. Whereas with, I've noticed with Babylon 5, yeah, they, they really expanded, but I feel like it builds the unit. It builds the, the universe in a sense. Uh, I think that's what's a big piece of this is that having these different, you know, making sure that they kind of tie up a lot of the loose ends so that, uh, you know, they're world building in a sense. Whereas I think with Star Trek, you already have a lot of that in place. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I think I more took it as they tend to, and I haven't kept a tally of this, so I might be wrong, but I, I tend to, I, I took it as they tend to use these like post-climax scenes more for character development and thematic development, world building. But certainly in this episode, you're right that they're really doing it, a lot of it for world building, especially the third scene with Earth Force getting the Akaran artifacts. So that, that is an interesting point, and it is something that, like, Babylon 5 had to do as an original uh, series that, like, an established, like, Star Trek or Star Wars franchise wouldn't necessarily have to do. And another thing I would say is, even though I, I kind of like the, the end scenes, that it gives you a more meditative quality, in a way, it maybe seems a poor fit for the era of streaming, because you know, the era of streaming is all about binging and it's all about immediately going to the next thing, right? Like you resolve the main conflict and it's like, okay, I want to see the next main conflict. So it, it can kind of feel a little weird. I mean, I, obviously I, I don't think, you know, one should let this feeling rule you, but like you kind of have this feeling when it's like, okay, the main point of the episode is over, but there's still five minutes. And it's just like, to me in the, in like the streaming mindset of watching something on HBO, Max or Netflix, you kind of want to immediately go to the next thing where you could see how build out from the climax would maybe be a lot more welcome in like this sort of serialized environment of weekly television where, you know, you get you get your uh, 45 minutes of Babylon 5 per week and that's it. You, you want to move into DS9 with uh, Nagus? Yeah, yeah, we'll probably be a little swifter on uh, Nagus than we were on Infection. So um, we've got two major plots in uh, Nagus, which is also sort of a milestone in being kind of the first Ferengi-focused episode of DS9. We'll, we'll tend to do one or two of those per season. 
And so in the A plot, uh, Grand Negus Zek, the leader of the Ferengi Alliance, has arrived at Quark's Bar to host a conference on Ferengi commercial strategies for the, for the Gamma Quadrant. And it turns out to name a successor to head the uh, effort of Ferengi uh, commercial conquest of the Gamma Quadrant. And then in the B plot, uh, Ben Sisko is worried about his son Jake's close friendship with Quark's nephew, Nog. Um, and I would also say in a C plot, um, Chief O'Brien is uh, the substitute teacher for Jake and Nog's class because his wife is on a two plus, not just two weeks, but two plus week family vacation during the school year, which uh, as, a, as teachers, I think we can both say what the hell truly Star Trek is a utopia. Yeah, that's that's insane. And the fact that they didn't have to find like a uh, they, they just got the chief engineer to go be the substitute teacher, which is weird, in my opinion. Like, I don't know. Did he have nothing else to do? I don't, I don't know. I, whenever, whenever I can't teach one of my classes, I just get my uh, I just get my girlfriend if I have one at the time to teach it for me, <laughs> especially for two, two weeks at a time. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's 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 impressive. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that as well. Yeah, overall, I, I enjoyed this episode. I think it, it really started to paint the Ferengi, uh, really actually define the Ferengi better so better than what the Next Generation did. I don't know if you remember that when the Ferengi were introduced in the Next Generation, they were just basically laughing hyenas mm-hmm. with uh, bull whips and stuff. And it, was, it wasn't the intent. Um, the way they're portrayed as now, th- this really paints them as a different, as a different species. Yeah, like the sort of uh, commercial and mercenary interest uh, for the Ferengi were always there, but they, I don't, in my memory, it wasn't played up that much in the next generation. And also in the next generation, they did kind of play them up as like a military threat, you know, with, with those starships that, you know, would occasionally get in confrontations with the Enterprise D. Whereas in Deep Space Nine, that, you know, the, the idea of the Ferengi as a military threat is totally gone. And you just, yeah, all... I think, I think the next generation screwed up pretty bad with the initial, uh, the initial representation of the Ferengi. And then, mm-hmm. uh, then it went for the militant route and then that didn't work either. And now we have the Ferengi as they are on DS9, which is it's much more interesting to watch, at least from a, from a viewer's perspective. Yeah, and I, I was kind of surprised because I didn't remember how much, and I don't know, I don't know if this can, I don't think it really does uh, continue in future Ferengi episodes of Deep Space Nine, but I was surprised how much of like a crime family vibe there was in this episode. You have, um, I mean, you know, a mild spoiler, Quark is appointed um, as the as the new Grand Negus, so uh, Zek can, you know, uh, retire and enjoy a hedonistic lifestyle, and so you have these scenes of him or this, these scenes of him like handing out concessions, handing out trade routes. And you also have a scene where he berates a petitioner that's, you know, tells him that he doesn't show him respect. And it's a very direct homage to that famous opening scene of, you know, the mafia movie, The Godfather, where an undertaker comes kind of disingenuously to seek a favor from Marlon Brando, who's playing The Godfather. And, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that this sort of like generosity of Quark style, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it because it, it seemed kind of not in keeping with Quark's personality or with general Ferengi cultural practices. I mean, you know, we, we get introduced to the Ferengi rules of acquisition here. And number one is once you have their money, never give it back. And right. I, I wasn't really sure what to make of the, the 
Quark's generosity as Negus. I, I didn't know if it was just like, it turns out Quark actually is unsuited for the job and he's like really stressed and he just wants to get back to counting the bar receipts or was it actually kind of a canny strategy because it, it does seem to be upsetting the two Ferengi underlings who are plotting against him because it's like, Oh, you know, he's getting popular with all these concessions. <laughs> right. When, yeah. when Rom and the when Rom and the other Ferengi do point that out, you know, that that's, that's a valid point that they point out that that's not like how it's supposed to be done. And that if he does become popular, we're going to have issues uh, with how we and uh, go forward. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was kind of interesting, but yeah, it, it was a really fun episode. Um, famously, this is uh, the great actor Wallace Shawn uh, is playing uh, Nagus uh, Zach, and uh, he's he's a really great uh, playwright too. I'll, I'll throw a, I'll throw a mention in the show notes of he did a he did a one man show, or actually it's a he wrote it. It's a one woman show, really called The Fever. Um, that I, I highly recommend. There's a good podcast version of it. I highly recommend people listen to it. And it, it's sort of ironic because uh, in life, Wallace Shawn is well known as like a very uh, militant socialist and Trotskyite. And uh, you know, here he's playing like the you know the godfather of the the ultra capitalist species. So that that's kind of a funny joke. To yeah, my mind. I think Wallace Wallace Shawn is most well known for a uh, Princess Bride. There was one other scene I kind of wanted to flag too. So it's, there's a kind of common uh, and, you know, kind of important trope in um, Afro-American literature where you where you have like a character either learning to read in their language or in a, in a new language. And, you know, you can definitely see like the historical reasons for that with like the denial of, uh, you know, the outright criminalization of literacy among enslaved uh, Blacks in uh, the antebellum U.S. and, you know, even with the continuing denial of educational opportunities after the war and after emancipation, uh, you can see why that scene might have a lot of cultural resonance. But like if you, if you read one of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies, or if you read Richard Wright's autobiography, or if you read like Octavia Butler's science fiction novel, Dawn, that scene of uh, a black character learning um, their language, or in the case of Dawn, an alien language is always a really interesting, uh, really interesting kind of development moment for, uh, for a character. And what I loved about this episode was it sort of reverses that where, you know, Ben and Jake are two of the most uh, prominent uh, African-American characters in all of TV science fiction. But here you sort of reverse that sort of famous trope of African-American literature where you have, it's actually Quark's nephew, uh, Nog, who doesn't know how to read. And so you have Jake secretly tutoring him against like the wishes of Quark and against the wishes of Rom and Negus Zek. And you, you have uh, been accidentally stumbling upon that and seeing that. I, I just thought that was a kind of really clever, um, really clever play on uh, existing tropes of African-American literature. So, well, let's talk uh, comparisons. So as far as these two episodes, uh, we'll start off with our thirst watch. Yeah, who's, uh, who's thirsty on uh, B5 or DS9 this week, Matt? Yeah, on, well, on DS9, we've got Grand Nagus Zek. He, uh, basically, the moment he shows up on DS9, the first thing he wants to do is partake in all five of Quark's uh, hollow programs, which all sound very dirty and um, somewhat just, just to sound awful. 
So that was the first thing. And then, of course, he goes and uh, they're waiting on him and it's taking him forever to go through all the programs. And thankfully, they don't show anything going on with Hollywood Deck. <laughs> but when he does come out, he's like extremely dehydrated and thirsty. So you can just it's implied what happened while he was in there. Um, I just thought that was gross, but whatever. I mean, at least uh, we don't see anything, and at least it's holographic women, not not real women being harassed by the neighbors. That's true. Um, we also we may also want to start like an airwalk watch because uh, it seems like one of the main ways that you can kill somebody or attempt to kill somebody in both of these television shows is by catching them in the airlock and trying to blow them out. Uh, you'll see this a lot. I don't know. If that's what happens with Quark here. And then uh, with uh, the, the creature, uh, the um, Nelson turning into the Akaran. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's, that's what happens there as well. Uh, and then, but it, it happens again in the next, uh, I think in the next couple episodes, uh, you'll see it once again. Just, it's a common trope. Uh, that's yeah. how we'll get rid of them. We'll suck them out the airlock. <laughs> well, weirdly, uh, weirdly, the season two episode of Babylon 5 I watched last night has an extended monologue about somebody falling out an airlock. <laughs> and uh, of course, common problem. Yeah, of course, this would be perfected in Battlestar Galactica, right? Where uh, the, the, the Secretary of Education um, come president, uh, her, her preferred method of executing the Cylons is airlocking them, which is, you, you just, lo- you love to see a school teacher gone bad. You love it, folks. So we've also got a deep state watch, which is, uh, you know, it was the 90s, conspiracies abounded. The X-Files is one of the most popular shows uh, on TV. And so we got we to gotta check in on what the deep state is up to. Uh, not too much on, um, Deep Space Nine, unless you want to think about, you know, the Ferengi deep state instead of the Federation deep state. So we, we definitely see uh, Zek and the Ferengi deep state up to some stuff. And then uh, on Babylon 5, we have the Earth Alliance uh, confiscation of the car and weapons, which seems to bode ill for the future. Yeah, I didn't I didn't, I didn't get much from Deep Space Nine as far as the deep state watch, but uh, I agree hard completely with the, you know, the Earth Alliance confiscation of those, those weapons. That's going to be that's going to be issues later on. Uh, I'm sure. Like I don't. I, I like I, like you've watched further ahead than I have, but I'm sure that becomes a problem later on down the road. I I actually don't know if it literally will become a plot point, but I, like I think it is setting up a concern about where the Earth Alliance is going. That is going to be followed up on. But I'm, I'm not sure if, like, the literal plot point of the Akaran weapons are going to be followed up on, although I could be wrong. We've also got a racism watch, which, uh, so we've got a, actually a lot of uh, a lot of prejudice on both stations in these episodes. So on, on Babylon 5, connected to the kind of concerns about the Earth government, we've got, you know, sense of this growing Earth first sentiment. And then uh, on uh, the DS9 station, we, we kind of have the mix of human and Bajoran prejudice against the Ferengi and Ferengi prejudice against humans. That's, and, you know, Ben Sisko having to overcome his, his own sort of preconceived ideas about Ferengi and about Nog specifically are a big part of uh, this episode. 
And then maybe our last segment, we could call it corporate watch. And, uh, you know, it was the nineties. We were all worried about corporate greed and, uh, we definitely have uh, a quite a bit of corporate ruthlessness, uh, from both, uh, the company interplanetary expeditions that is funding, uh, Dr. Hendricks and Babylon five. And, uh, of course we have a uh, corporate ruthlessness from the Ferengi Alliance. We would expect no less. Yeah. Corporations were like, there, there's there's a ton of that going that thing's gonna happen with Babylon Five as, as we go forward. I don't see it as much with DS Nine, but yeah, with with, with the corporate the corporate ruthless, see, corporate ruthlessness of the Ferengi Alliance, that's a huge deal. Let me uh, let me say this though: there, there's one thing we did like leave out. I don't even know if you want to call this a segment. Uh, I'm just gonna call it Matt Matt's uh, intuition paid off, I guess. Garibaldi at the end of the episode finally points out what I've been saying all along. That Sinclair <laughs> is always putting himself at the forefront of everything and is going to get himself killed. And Garibaldi finally call, calls him out on it. And uh, that, that made me happy to know that I actually was able to catch on to that. Like, okay, why is Sinclair always, you know, just putting himself on the line? Uh, anybody could have gone after, uh, after the, the, the creature. But no, he had to go himself. He like just jumps down this rabbit hole at one point and like goes off and puts himself in the airlock and is willing to have himself sucked out in the space just to save the station. It's like he wants to die. And uh, Garibaldi calls him out on it. So I, I, I was happy to see that. Yeah, and it's it's sort of interesting that Garibaldi kind of directly ties it into um, Sinclair sort of having real anxieties about like what happened to all of his uh, all the people under his command in the Battle of the Line and the survivors' guilt, and it it seems like. It, on the one hand, it is this sort of sense that Garibaldi identifies that Sinclair just wants to, he wants to find something he can sacrifice himself for. But on the other hand, it also seems like Sinclair just has this real, real strong protectiveness for everyone under his command. And so he's willing to undertake these extraordinary and possibly stupid acts of bravery in order to protect the people under his command because he doesn't want a repeat of what happened on the line. So we'll maybe we'll see. Maybe Sinclair will, will step back a little bit in the next couple episodes, but I highly doubt it. I'm sure he's will probably still be the trying to be the action hero he, he wants to be. Um, I, I actually do think he does step back, but I might I'm, I might be wrong about that. We'll we'll have to see. But my, my vague memory of season one is that he's we I, I think we've we've had our quota of action plots for the moment or at least action plots in this way i mean there'll definitely be more before the end of the season but that that's sort of my feeling next week we'll be looking at uh episode five of babylon five parliament of dreams and we'll be comparing that to episode 13 of ds9 uh battle lines yeah yeah and we'll just have to warn the warn the good folks in the audience in advance that battle lines is uh not a, not a great episode, although it, it is sort of important for like overall storyline and character development on DS9. So that's why we're covering it. All right. Well, we uh, hope everybody joins us next week. It's uh, always a pleasure talking to you. This has been Bob from Cascadia. I had uh, Matt from the Southland on the line and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, b5vsds9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher.
take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, we plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.